Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Batflip Crazy podcast, where you'll always find enthusiastic, data-driven fantasy baseball analysis and strategy. I am your host, Toby. Today we have part two of a two-part series in the podcast, which is Toby on the Road, uh, which consists of part one, which was earlier this week, which was me driving down uh, to the holidays with my family, sharing some of my thoughts uh, about drafts that I've had so far in 2020 draft strategy. And now part two is going to be me responding to some uh, listener questions in kind of a mailbag format um, that were submitted after I hit the road last time. And so I didn't have a chance to answer them. Uh, those include um, my thoughts on uh, quote unquote a marmol, marmol plan, which I think is based off of Carlos Marmol, if I'm remembering him correctly and pronouncing the name correctly. But essentially, the idea of in some ways punting, starting pitching, and uh, focusing on, you know, re- uh, on middle relievers that have really good ratios. Um, and some kind of saves guys, closers as well, um, and in some ways punting wins and strikeouts and what my response is to that. I also talk about some strategies beyond just the pocket aces, which I discussed in part one uh, in 15 team leagues. So if I'm not going to utilize that draft strategy, what might be some other considerations or strategies that I would think about employing um, thoughts on Shohei Otani. So I tried to stay clear of like player specific ones, but I think Otani is kind of an interesting case. And so I got a question about um, him as a keeper, which uh, provides me with an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, him as a player and and in what instances he may be more or less valuable. Uh, answered a question about OBP and quality starts. Uh, I turned it into a little bit of a strategy question, but it was about some late round folks to target in OBP and quality starts. I don't answer that question specifically, but I share a little bit about what my process would be and what some tools I would use to identify those players would be. Uh, Talking about what ball I expect to be in play in 2020. So the 2019 uh, happy fun ball, which had reduced drag and resulted in a ton of home runs or more like 18, uh, which was a little bit uh, more drag and uh, pretty pretty normal in terms of you know home run for per fly balls uh, rates of about twelve percent, whereas this past year it was around fifteen percent um, across the league average. So I respond to that as well as share just a little bit about um, a question I answered on a different podcast, but I thought might be helpful, which is just a really important tool or set of tools that I think are critical to success in. Uh, drafting and building teams that are going to be competitive with as few weaknesses as possible. So I share that a little bit at the end. As uh, I mentioned before, I apologize in advance for the audio not being great. I literally am in my car driving and uh, recording the podcast. In this particular podcast, uh, it was dark, so uh, I couldn't really see my notes. So you'll see that that the audio might be broken up because I had to break it up into a couple uh, little segments. And so uh, just something to note, I apologize if that uh, for that reason, it's a little bit choppy or not as smooth as it was during the first one, but uh, I'm doing the best with what I can with the limited time I have. I also just wanted to thank everybody who had submitted a five-star rating and a review to the podcast um, in the last uh, few days since the first post- podcast. We have 11 new ratings and reviews, uh, but I've only heard from a handful of people who are interested in entering the contest, the giveaway of a, a baseball HQ baseball forecaster. I have two of them in my possession, so I'm going to mail them uh, to one lucky winner who posts uh, a five-star rating and review and then connects with me either in my DMs or in my notifications. It may be best to connect with me in the in my DMs just to let me know who you are um, so that I can enter you into the giveaway, and then I will draw that name, uh, the winner of that, on January 1st in the new year. Again, I have an extra baseball forecaster on accident, and so I thought it might be fun just to uh, show some appreciation to the listeners. Um, and also, I love... I love uh, hearing your feedback on the on the podcast. So really, really appreciate that. All right. This is a very long intro, so I will cut it. I hope you had a wonderful um, holiday season. As always, you can follow me on Batfoot at Batfoot Crazy. Um, yeah, let's get this party started. Uh. 
All right, I am back on the road again uh, tonight, heading back to my house after a nice uh, holiday with the family, and I had a good time recording the uh, first podcast on the road, and so I thought I would uh, try uh, try again uh, and do another podcast on the road home, covering some of the questions that I got a little bit after I left uh, uh, earlier this week uh, for the holiday that I wasn't able to get to. And so I am on the right road driving, so I'm going to paraphrase the questions uh, that I got, generally speaking, and then, um, you know, from, from there I'll do my best to articulate exactly what the question was and then give a little bit of credit to the person who, who asked the question. So uh, let's get started right now. Uh, the first question comes from at Little Fantasy Mo. And the question is, what are my thoughts about the quote-unquote marmal strategy um, that was coined by at Bobby Fantasy Pro? Um, and the essential strategy is the idea of focusing on hitting um, heavily early on, um, not necessarily punting uh, pitching, but focusing on getting some you know, elite middle relief innings uh, or in, uh, relief pitchers. So guys who aren't necessarily getting saves, but who are getting, um, you know, a lot of Ks per nine, uh, who have really nice ratios, supplementing that with some non-elite save slash uh, hold folks, depending on whether in in just a saves league or a saves and hold league, um, whatever it uh, may be. And so, uh, you know, and then, um, you know, so really uh, trying to punt in a way wins and Ks and really focus on, you know, developing those really strong ratios um, and uh, competing in, in saves and holds. So um, it's a great question. You know, I think with a lot of these types of questions, a lot depends on the league that you're in. Um, I think most of my analysis comes from the perspective of NFBC leagues, 15-team uh, NFBC leagues specifically, um, but I have never been somebody who, um, you know, who punts categories or who, um, you know, promotes punting categories, especially punting two categories. If, in fact, in this scenario, you are punting both wins and strikeouts, um, you know, it's really hard. Like if you're in a 12-team league and you start out, you know, punting those two categories, so... You know, even if you don't get one in those categories, let's say you get like a three or four in those categories, your max points that you can accumulate is already a hundred. And in most of the twelve-team leagues that I play in, um, you know, uh, or my math is my math is terrible there. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's at, it's at a hundred. And most of the leagues that I play in, you know, that's not going to cut it for a championship. And so I wouldn't um, promote. Uh, you know, that type of strategy. But again, it depends on the league that you're in, you know, in a lot of uh, home leagues or a lot of shallower leagues, you know, you can supplement uh, your pitching with some of the middle relievers to get um, that elite type of production. And so I don't, um, you know, again, like in the leagues that I'm playing with, that just wouldn't really work. Um, I also think that, you know, one of the things that I enjoy about the game and which I find really fun is, you know, and what I like, especially about about five by five uh, categories, is it's really hard to balance all of those categories, right? It's really hard to compete in home runs and stolen bases. It's really hard to compete in home runs and batting average because, generally speaking, the profiles that you're getting aren't, aren't you know, there there's very few profiles that are able to check all of those boxes, and so it's like a puzzle. Like you're trying to take all these different pieces and plug them together to create a cohesive team that's able to compete and beat the other teams. And so, you know, knowing your league settings is really, really important. And so if, that, if that's a strategy that can work under your league settings, then most certainly take advantage of that um, because, yeah, you can get some really great innings from middle relief pitchers. I think in the leagues that I'm playing in, number one, just the competition level is such where you can't really, I mean, punting one category is hard enough. You have to really think it through if you're in like a, a unique league, but if punting two is kind of out of the question for being able to compete. And then I think second of all, I'm playing in a lot of overall competition. So like in the main event, there's an overall competition in the DC, 
there's an overall competition and financially it's it, you have a strong incentive to try to win those and so for that reason you can't really punt any categories if you want to compete um, in an overall competition and so for that reason I um, really am not uh, I wouldn't be somebody who would who would employ that strategy again that's not to say it hasn't been effective in some league formats or under some league settings um, but it wouldn't necessarily be uh, the one that I employ. I also think it's really hard in those, the leagues that I play in to even roster middle relievers unless you use them very strategically. Um, and I say that because there's such a comp- fierce competition in the overall competitions and even at the league level for strikeouts, uh, for wins, um, that if you are going to put a middle reliever in there, it's got to be strategically when maybe there are some starting pitchers who you know aren't getting you a lot of innings, aren't getting you a lot of Ks, and they have tough matchups. It's hard to do that on a on a continuous basis to have one of your nine pitcher slots uh, be a middle reliever and be successful. At least I've found it to be that way. Again, that doesn't mean that it's not possible to be successful um, utilizing that strategy. It's just not something that I personally have been able to employ um, to uh, to be effective. So once again, like. The best thing you can do to win in fantasy baseball is understand your league settings. Um, And if there are unique things to your league, or not even unique, but if there are certain characteristics to your league that make it uh, helpful um, to have middle relievers, I think that's great. In my 12-team home Yahoo League, I employ a little bit of that strategy. It's a daily league, and so what I'll do is have you know a core group of, of starting pitchers who you know I like like say like you know six seven something like that and then I will have my closers and then when my starting pitchers aren't starting I'll put in the middle relievers uh, during those days to be able to accrue some of the better ratios some of the better K per nine um, some of the better K's just a general um, that helps supplement maybe a little bit of weakness um, that I might have in you know my six to seven pitchers because if you take you know maybe a guy who doesn't pitch as many innings say like a Kyle Hendricks and doesn't get a ton of K's and you have an innings pitch limit like you do in my Yahoo League of like fourteen hundred fifty innings something like that like what you um, you actually can employ a middle reliever because you know with a guy like uh, Kyle Hendricks in a daily league again not weekly so you're not missing out on starts. You know, you start him on your starts, and then you supplement him. And so when you combine those two pitchers, it becomes a very good pitcher. But again, you're getting a similar amount of innings as you would to kind of a more traditional pitcher. And so in a daily league, I think it's a lot easier to utilize kind of middle relievers who are contributors than it is in a weekly league. And so that's another facet, I think, that's really uh, important to know about your league Uh, and kind of to exploit in the same way like you can use platoon guys a lot better in a daily league than you can in a weekly league right because you don't have to look ahead at the schedule you can just see whether they're in the lineup that day and kind of plug and play and so that's actually a strategy that you can employ in daily leagues is kind of leveraging that uh, the the platoon splits uh, of certain guys uh, to improve your offensive statistics as well so I do think that there's a place for doing that type of strategy not necessarily punting those two categories because I just think in a really competitive league, it's going to be really it's you're going to be it's going to be really unlikely to be able to win that league. Um, but when you punt those two categories, if it's five by five again, right? Like we're talking you're talking about punting two of the ten categories. So like 80th percentile is the best finish you could possibly do, um, and then you don't have much room for error on your hitters or or things of that nature. So I guess that would be my general response. Like, but again, know your league setting, knows what, know what's going to work, know what's going to be effective. Think through that strategy, bounce that strategy off, you know, uh, trusted analysts that you have in the fantasy baseball community, uh, bounce it off a friend, see what the winning teams, what strategy they're employing. If you're able to do that at the end of the season, just to kind of see like, okay, they use this and they were, they were, they were successful. What was it? Was it something where, you know, maybe they lucked out on a couple players um, in any given year, or they have better analysis on the player, or maybe they employed some sort of strategy that you might be able to um, take up. So again, not saying outright that that doesn't work or it's not effective. It's not something that I use in my particular leagues, but I think in some situations, um, certainly employing 
you know, highly skilled middle relievers is a great uh, thing to do. I think even in competitive leagues, uh, you know, you know, maybe not multi-inning reliever types, but you know, going after guys who are in high leverage situations that have really strong skills in, cl- in case there's an injury or a lack of performance from the established closer is another way to just kind of speculate um, on that. So uh, a great question, a uh, little fantasy mo. Um, really appreciate, um, uh, really appreciate that. And so then the next question um, comes from uh, Will Garofalo at W Garofalo uh, two on Twitter. Will is a, is a great follow. He's been pro- producing a lot of content recently um, and engaging a lot on Twitter. Um, really appreciate the question, Will. And his question is essentially: um, if you're not employing the pocket aces strategy, and if you're new to the podcast, um, this is essentially the strategy of getting two of the top. 15 to 18 starting pitchers in this year's drafts, including getting one in, in generally the first round, uh, or at least the first couple rounds, if not starting, starting, starting pitcher, starting pitcher. So his question is, and I'm summarizing, if you're not employing that type of a strategy um, in a 15-team league, what is my other favorite strategy to employ? And um, then on top of that, not just what is my favorite strategy to employ, but do you feel like it's you know that you can win uh, by essentially getting just one or two starting pitchers in the first seven uh, players that you draft, and then using kind of your your analysis of pitchers to identify them and you know and maybe get some value between rounds eight and fifteen. Um, and so you know I'll, I'll kind of tackle this one in segments. So. Uh, you know, my strategy is the pocket aces. And so it's not, it's not that I, you know, won't play around with other ones, but the goal in fantasy baseball is to get the most points, at least in Roto. Uh, it's to get the most points and to be balanced and to be solid across the board. That's always my goal whenever I start. And the reason why I have pocket aces um, is because I feel like that is the best way that I can uh, compete in the five categories that have the most volatility, which is which is pitching, uh, is by getting the least volatile pitchers within the, the draft landscape. And so when you see me drafting, I doubt you'll see me with a draft board where I don't grab one, two of those top 18 starting pitchers. I just think that for me, again, for me, not for anybody else, like there's a lot of different ways to win. For me, that's how I feel most comfortable drafting a team. That's also how I feel. That's also how I feel right now, given the broader kind of landscape that we have uh, in fantasy baseball. I think that that's, that's how you are most likely to uh, start out in a very competitive situation. And then in a league, at least that has waiver wire that allows you to kind of grind, um, that you are able to convert uh, you know, you're able to, to compete in those pitching categories and then grind out, you know, some of those pitching categories, but then also identify talent, you know, for hitting and for pitching later on. So if I'm not employing that strategy, I think, you know, you can definitely be successful just getting one or two um, starting pitchers um, in the first seven. I, that's actually generally what I do. You know, like people, um, what I'm talking about when I talk about pocket aces is getting two generally like two of your first three or four picks are going to be starting pitchers and then punting not punting but like not drafting a starting pitcher for you know at least maybe six rounds like if you start out starting pitcher starting pitcher but generally by like round eight or nine I still only have two starting pitchers so I'm generally doing that but if I'm only going to grab like let's say one starting pitcher there and then one later on and kind of use it like you can definitely win in that situation it's just for me I feel like you know the situation you're putting yourself in is that you need to hit on those guys right like that's essentially what you are saying is okay I'm not going to be as strong in pitching as I am in hitting but I know the draft pool in round eight rounds 18 or rounds eight through 15 much better than everybody else in my draft and I'm going to use that knowledge to exploit you know holes in the market where I feel like they're missing on some starting pitchers you can certainly do that but the question is you know let's say you're the one ace that you draft doesn't pan out 
right? It's Blake Snell from last year, or it's Trevor Bauer from last year, it's Corey Kluber from last year. Let's say that doesn't pan out. Even if you hit on some of those guys rounds eight through 15, you're still gonna be in a really tough situation to compete for starting pitchers unless you get this year's Lucas Giolito. Again, like it's very possible to do that, but you're, you're, you're narrowing your window of competition in pitching, in my opinion. Like that's how I feel. And I feel like I'm decent at being able to, you know, an- analyze the pitching market and being able to identify guys, especially on waiver wire, right? Like I, I picked up Lucas Giolito last year. I had him in my three big leagues. I picked him up in mid, mid-April. And that's because I'm always scouring the skills, like, right? Not looking at outcomes, but, you know, he had a really high ERA to begin with, but, you know, the BABIP was really high. He was giving up a bunch of home runs. But when you looked underneath the hood, you know, the swinging strike rate was solid. The CSW was solid. um, The in-zone contact rate was looking good. So he was improving generally. And so I took a chance on him. Like, I didn't know he was going to turn into what he turned into. But that's kind of what you're hoping for, right? You're speculating on guys, sticking them in the lineup, seeing if they work out, and you're hoping that you strike gold. And from my perspective, I don't want to hope that I strike gold in those rounds 8 through 15 or even later on in the draft, right? Like, the mentality that I want to have heading into those drafts is I have a very solid foundation in starting pitching. And what I'm going to try to do in those late rounds is take similar speculative shots at pitchers who could be mediocre, could be good, could be bad, but who I have reason to believe may be more likely to be better than than the market thinks for whatever reason, right? That may be because like last year over the last 10 games, they had a higher straight swinging strike rate because they started throwing their slider, which is their best pitch. Like whatever it is, you need, I'm looking for a justification to take that pitcher higher, you know, or draft that pitcher among the like, again, like using kind of the Paul Sporer and Justin Mason glob idea, like out of that glob, I'm just hoping that maybe one or two of those guys stick. I'm knowing that some of them are probably going to miss through injury or for, 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 for performance. And so instead of relying on those guys, I'm hoping those guys take me to the next level because hopefully I have a strong foundation to begin with because I have volume, because I have the most reliable, um, pitchers out of a out of the most volatile part of fantasy uh, fantasy baseball and I think I saw that last year with my results again very small sample size but in all of my leagues pretty much I was very competitive if not one of the uh, top teams in start in, in pitching overall and you know and, and what what really differentiated my teams that were successful versus the ones that weren't was how good I was offensively in general, at least in 15-team leagues. And I think that's the challenge, right, is when you focus on pitching early on, um, you know, hitters are more reliable, there's less risk of injury, um, and I think, you know, some more consistency in their performance. And so what I'm banking on is being able to um, identify some holes in the market throughout the draft that allow me to build a team that looks fairly similar at the end of the draft as the teams of other teams within my draft who drafted hitters early on. And maybe that's because they're spending three or four picks on pitching in those middle rounds when I'm spending zero or when I'm only spending one of them on a pitcher or, you know, they're spending earlier, earlier rounds on relief pitchers while I'm, you know, waiting to get relief pitchers later on, whatever it is, right? Like when you wait on, when you, when you target hitting early on, you're putting yourself in a position where just like you do when you start with pitching, you, you've got you've to really make a move um, in, in hitting um, and so, or, in, or in, in, uh, in pitching, right? Like you, you have to compensate somehow for every other team you know, in your draft or 10 out of 15 teams having one of those elite starting pitchers. And so I really see it that way and I feel like there's such a focus on hitting in fantasy baseball and you know and I and I think you know there's good reason for that right because it's less volatile because you know hitters are a little bit more consistent um but for me I really want to pay equal attention to both of them because points out of each category are the same value and maybe I believe a little bit that the market in general and the way that we focus on fantasy baseball makes starting pitchers a little bit more valuable because 
you know, the, the top end of them would, um, you would generally like, you know, just like the top end of hitters go early, 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 you know, those top 18, uh, you know, starting pitchers go a little bit later than maybe they should. Again, that's just my personal opinion. But if I was doing a strategy, um, where, you know, where I was not, uh, you know, kind of double upping on uh, double doubling up on the pocket aces, um, I think what you'd probably see me do, um, is, well, what I would do, what I will tell you is I, what I find the most interesting thing is when teams choose to wait on starting pitching and they leave, like, let's say their first four picks are hitters or their first five picks are hitters. And after those five, after those five picks, they're still not strong in, 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 in all five categories. Like that's the thing that I don't understand is if you are going to quote unquote, quote bully hitting to begin with, I don't know how you cannot draft stolen bases or not draft RBI or not draft runs or not draft batting average. Like a lot of times what I'll see is, is teams will go heavy on power early on and they get a lot of power, but you know, there's not a lot of average and there's not a lot of average late in draft, and maybe there's not a lot of speed, or else they'll draft like a Trey Turner, and then they'll just go power, power, power. And, I mean, having, you know, 40 stolen bases from Trey Turner after four rounds is great, but if you've only got, if you've drafted four or five consecutive hitters, and you're only sitting at 50 stolen bases, it's going to be really hard as you're trying to catch up with pitching later on to also be able to uh, get stolen bases and to get batting average and not hurt yourself in all the other categories that you've already built in support for. And so really like what I'm advocating for is a balanced approach um, to both pitching and hitting that values them in a similar way um, while recognizing that obviously you need to spend more on hitting because there's more hitting positions, right? But then also recognizing that pitchers, individual pitchers who are really good can have more of an impact on the pitching categories then you're the best hitter in the world, right? And so that just gives you a sense, I think, of what you would see me do if I was doing that. Is, you know, I would start out and I would get a five category contributor in the first round, hopefully in the second round, if I if they were if there were still ones that I liked in the third round, or at least just looking ahead to see who I was likely to pick in those first five rounds in terms of hitters to make sure that I was building a very solid foundation. Um, in in pitching, if that was what I was going to do, because I don't want to leave um, any, I don't want to, you know, I want to leave as little room for error as possible, or not not room for error, but I want to leave as little, um, I want to leave as little like uh, weakness left in that team, because I know I'm going to have to compensate in starting pitching, and I know that I should be. Theoretically speaking, I should be way behind the eight ball and starting pitcher to all the other guys who drafted higher than me. Of course, that'll change as the season goes on, right? As that first ace maybe, um, you know, gets injured or doesn't perform the way that we expected them to. So maybe that's going to have a really dramatic impact on that particular team. But to start the season, to start out looking at projections and what the 50th percentile projection is... Uh, heading out of the draft, you're going to be in a really uh, in a position to really have to dig out of pitching later on. So, Will, I hope that that answered your question. But the pocket aces strategy is the strategy that I believe gives me the best opportunity to win. And so, I think you'll see me use that strategy in 15 team leagues, especially. I think in 12 team leagues, it's a little bit different for me. I think you go after one of those top notch aces, and I think you can wait a little while, right? Because you're getting more hitters before you get you know, that back-end ace. I feel more comfortable getting that back-end ace because the waiver wire is better, streaming is easier, you know, in 12-teamers, things of that nature. So that is kind of um, where I am at um, from uh, that uh, perspective. Um, All right, I hope that was um, helpful. Um, Okay. All right, the next question is from Shark Week Shane, at Shark Week Shane, 
And Shane asks about, um, you know, I'm generally in this type of podcast, I'm not going to cover um, individual players. But in this instance, he asks uh, about um, how likely I would be to keep Shohei Otani if I already have Jordan Alvarez on my team. So assuming there's only one utility spot um, on your active uh, roster, you know, you ha- and you have Jordan Alvarez there, um, how likely you'd be to keep Otani. Um, I think, you know, depending on the league, obviously, and depending on what the punishment is for, uh, for keeping, right? Like if you're, you know, whatever round pick it is, or if you're just freely keeping people, Generally, my approach to Otani this year is probably going to be to stick a, to stay away unless I hear something in spring training about the way that he's going to be used that uh, indicates that that uh, something will change. But right now, his ADP, at least in the NFBC, is hovering around the mid uh, 80s. And you know, and assuming your league allows you to have both hitter and pitcher Otani. Like, if it's just batter Otani or just pitching Otani, I think just hitting Otani, like you want just hitting Otani in maybe a daily league where you can kind of plug him in when he's in the starting lineup. But in weekly leagues and even bi-weekly leagues, if his usage is the same as it was uh, under, you know, uh, Mike Sosha when he was pitching and, you know, uh, to a lesser extent, I mean, Brad Osmus really didn't have a chance to have him as a pitcher uh, for him, but if he's only hitting three or four times a game uh, a week, you know, because he's missing the starts around his, um, he's miss, he's not he's not hitting uh, in the before and after his start. Then you know he's a lot less interesting, even in biweekly leagues, um, just because you know if he's only going to make three out of four uh, of those games, or even you know, one out of those three, or none of those three in the second half. You know, paying that type of price for him is just too much. If you're in a daily league and you can use him as both a hitter and a pitcher, I think he could be really valuable. And, you know, it's tough in the situation you're in. Again, it all depends in keeper leagues about how many people you're able to keep. But I think that I, I might, if there wasn't like a significant punishment, I might keep him just to be able to use him in the starts and to have like a little bit of a... Um, you know, a little bit like he's such a unique profile that if there isn't really a significant harm in keeping him in terms of not keeping other players that you're more likely to use, then I would consider it just because the profile is so unique. Like he could be a very good pitcher and then a very good hitter while he's playing. But I think mostly in daily leagues is when I'd consider, um, you know, keeping him. But I'm probably not going to if I already have Alvarez there. I fully anticipate that Alvarez is going to be a beast. Uh, when it comes to hitting. So my general approach with Otani this year is to, is to, is to steer clear of him. Um, we'll see what he ends up, uh, what, what the approach is for the Angels. I know that Joe Madden was recently quoted as saying he's not sure why he can't, you know, hit, uh, you know, in the, in the games near when he starts, uh, on either side of when he starts, or even when he is starting. But, you know, we'll see. Nobody's really done that um, before. Uh, in recent baseball history, and so uh, when we start seeing it is probably when we should adjust to that and not necessarily take Joe Madden uh, or any manager really at his word there. So generally speaking, in most keeper formats, I would be letting Otani go or trying to trade him if that's possible preseason um, to somebody who might be able to use him a little bit more. If it is daily leagues, it makes him a little bit more interesting if you have both hitting and pitching um, because I think you could take advantage of, you know, when he's got a better matchup than Jordan Alvarez has, he's obviously going to steal more than Jordan Alvarez is going to. And so I just think you need to be creative in using him. And when I'm drafting somebody in the top 100 picks, I don't really have to, I don't know, I don't want to have to think, you know, I don't want there to be that much risk in a profile, which is very good, don't get me wrong, but, you know, isn't like a, isn't necessarily like a first-round talent as a hitter only or as a as a pitcher pitcher only yet. So I hope that's helpful in answering that question, Shark Week Shane. Um, you know that's 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 kind of my approach to Otani right now. I don't think I'll have him on many, if any, teams in redraft formats and then in keeper. I think it really depends on what the league format is and how much you are being punished in terms of not being able to keep other players or draft pick uh, for keeping him but if it doesn't hurt too bad um, the profile is certainly unique and we know that he's a very very he's an elite 
he's an elite pitcher when he's healthy, and he's an elite hitter uh, when he is healthy as well. So uh, that that's certainly um, a nice profile to have on your team if, if, if it's not too much. All right, uh, the next question um, comes from at uh, N-T- uh, H-T-T-N, um, and the question is about OBP and quality starts. Uh, so OBP hitters uh, and then quality start pitchers in deeper formats. So I took this question. Um, I'm obviously driving, and so I don't have, and I, I haven't had a chance to do the research that I normally would on a question like this. So what I'll do is, is answer it in more of a process fashion. And so that is to say what I would do in an OBP league, the, good, the, the goodness of OBP is that there's a lot less volatility um, year to year between batting average and OBP. Um, so, or in OBP leagues, like there's a lot less volatility year to year in OBP um, than there is in batting average because you're integrating a component in plate discipline um, that uh, generally is sticky from uh, year to year, whereas the things that average is dependent on, you know, contact skills are certainly there, but like BABIP, you know, things of that nature. You know, if you have a low BABIP season and it's batting average, it's going to be really hard to put anything close to the batting average that you've had in previous seasons. But if you're doing an OBP league and you still have that good plate discipline, you know, you still have an opportunity to um, have a solid, uh, a solid OBP. So I hope I explained that effectively. But what I would do essentially is uh, chase rate or O swing on fan graphs is a really good proxy for plate discipline. That's essentially how frequently a player chases pitches outside the zone. And it's one of my go-tos, um, you know, just in terms of analyzing players because we know that when players don't swing at pitches outside the zone uh, and swing at pitches inside the zone, then they're going to make better putt contact and that's likely to result in better outcomes for them from a hitting perspective and then they're also likely to get on base more and score more runs uh, because they're on base more and so um, what I would do is uh, you definitely take a look at O-Swing like the O-Swing leaderboards on fan graphs um, just to see who is always you know at the top of those who is elite in that perspective and I really think there's an opportunity in a lot of situations because so many people play five by five with batting average to, I'm not sure that people always value OBP to the extent that they should, um, you know, and I think there's a lot of guys who maybe have high batting average, but lower OBPs who are drafted uh, like they have higher OBPs, and there's a lot of guys who have higher OBPs but low batting averages um, who become a lot more interesting, and I think the most obvious example of that is power hitter profiles where you know guys may have like 10 plus percent walk rates but you know may hit 250 240 Uh, those guys tend to be a lot more valuable obviously in obp leagues um, because their their obp is not going to be as bad in terms of league average as you know their batting average would be so definitely take a look at o swing take a look at the walk leaders um you know and then really kind of trudge through those and see who are some of the O-swing guys, guys who are really, who don't chase pitches on, uh, chase balls outside the zone, who have high walk rates, whose ADPs are lower than you think they should be, right? Um, You know, and so using that to uh, analyze guys in projections, looking at the projected OBP of players, uh, one thing that you can do is on Fangraphs, they have the auction calculator. So take whatever size league you have, input all of the you know, different positions, things of that nature, and it'll actually spit out um, uh, auction values for those, those hitters, and then just compare those to ADP. So look who's producing the most value at the different positions and overall, and then compare them to where they're going in ADP uh, in OBP leagues if you have access to that information. You know, otherwise, you can just compare it to regular overall ADP using batting average and just anticipate that maybe the folks in your drafts won't be uh, changing uh, the ADP as much or you know maybe they're going to be relying on that same ADP that factors in average. So I would use that. Uh, for quality starts, I only play in one quality start league um, and that is uh, the BARF uh, league, which is a fantasy baseball kind of uh, fantasy sports industry league with a bunch of guys like Justin Mason, uh, Sammy Reed, and a number of um, others. And um, 
you know, in quality starts, I actually think, and again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but, you know, I'm somebody who already likes to uh, put a premium on starting pitching and push starting pitchers up, up the leaderboards. With quality starts, I think it's even more so. In quality start leagues, I think your first two picks uh, should be, uh, generally speaking, should be starting pitchers. And that's because there is a massive gap uh, between uh, quality starts of aces versus other pitchers. Because the reason why they're aces is because they're not only you know, very good pitchers, but they also have a ton of, produce a ton of volume. And it's very hard to find those guys. It's very hard to find high quality start guys you know, deeper in drafts uh, and off of the waiver wire. It certainly can happen, but uh, I seem to find that. And when I have uh, created auction values, um, you know, or, you know, just valuations using quality starts leagues, I have found that uh, normally the top, uh, uh, the top players are in quality start leagues are starting pitchers just from a valuation perspective. Um, And so I would definitely prioritize uh, aces in a, in a, in a quality start league. I think that's a, um, you know, you like, it doesn't have to be one, two quality start or, or uh, aces, but I would definitely put even more of a premium uh, on starting pitching, high quality starting pitching in a quality start league, because, you know, it's, you can find a guy who lucks into wins in any given year, but you can't really luck into a high volume of, of quality starts. Um, I'm actually not a huge fan of quality start leagues just because, you know, I think there's equally, you know, yes, there's guys who sometimes get wins in horrible situations or sometimes don't get the win in when they pitch excellently. But, you know, in quality start leagues, there's plenty of guys who go five and two thirds who give up very, you know, one or two earned runs, but because you didn't get to that magic six number, you don't get a quality start or, a guy who follows an opener, the opener totally destroys like the ability to get a quality start. And so for those reasons, I would shy away from being in quality start leagues, generally speaking. But, you know, when you are in them, uh, I would prioritize um, starting pitching. And then if you are looking for guys deeper in drafts, I would look for volume guys. So start looking at innings pitched, Um, you know, either innings pitched or innings pitched per start and really targeting some of those guys. Like guys like uh, Sandy Alcantara uh, from the Marlins seems like a guy who could be uh, really good from a quality starts perspective. Um, you know, he doesn't strike out a ton of guys, but you know, towards the end of last year, he was pitching a ton of volume. Uh, he was much better as the year progressed. Um, and because he didn't have the same walk issues he had earlier on in the year, he was throwing more strikes, guys were putting the ball in play more, and he was going deeper into games. Uh, so that's one example that kind of jumps uh, out at me right away. I think Merrill Kelly was decent in quality start leagues last year towards the end of the season. Um, but generally speaking, I just look for guys who last year pitched volume in terms of you know, the number of batters faced or the number of innings per start they were pitching, either across the full season or, or towards the end, because I think that's probably the best indicator we have of what they're likely to do in the future in terms of, of volume. So... Um, I hope that uh, that's helpful. I'm not giving you many names there um, specifically, but hopefully the process-related points um, will be somewhat useful in terms of being able to identify those guys or seeing guys who, um, you know, might pop out in OBP leagues later on or uh, in in quality start leagues. Uh, The last question uh, from the podcast uh, comes from at uh, NJFan76. Um, that's Walter. I don't have the last name in front of me, but um, uh, he's been a longtime supporter. So hello, Walter. Thank you for your question. And his question is generally about how I'm approaching the ball in 2020. So do I think that the, ni- the 2019 ball is going to stick in Major League Baseball? And if so, how does that affect the way that we tackle pitching? Um, how does that uh, affect the way that we tackle hitters? Um, as well. Uh, my, my response to that, how does it affect it? And I would say that I am anticipating that we are going to get the same ball in uh, 2020 that we got in 2019. I think in his most recent press conference, Rob Manfred was pretty clear. I think that pitchers were the ones that were going to need to adjust to the new ball. Uh, it sounds like from what I have read um, that the reason why the playoff ball was a little uh, deadened 
uh, was that there was some leftover balls from 2018 possibly um, and that that was one of the reasons why both there was um, uh, why there was uh, more drag on the balls in a lot of the postseason games but then also why there was a really big fluctuation in the amount of drag um, on kind of like a game-by-game basis and so I think we're probably going to see the 19 balls I think um, you know I think I just think that that's probably what we're going to see moving forward um, you know but my guess is as good as anybody else's I, I don't know for sure whether that's going to be the case but that's how I'm going to be moving forward and I think most of the projections are kind of taking that approach uh, but maybe like a little providing a little bit of uh, you know uh, risk built into those so not necessarily a hundred percent uh, last year's balls but um, you know some percent maybe 80 percent of last year's balls you know and some of it, the 18 ball or or doing like a three-year average something of that nature but um, weighted average so I would definitely expect it still to happen I think the biggest impact on pitching is you know like fly ball pitchers who in the past have been able to have pretty low BABIPs um, you know the BABIPs will continue to be low but they're going to be more home run prone right like even if their home run per fly ball rate uh, stays relatively the same um, or I mean uh, if their fly ball rate stays relatively the same then their home runs are going to go up because the ball is traveling a further distance we saw that with a guy like Justin Verlander I think the key with guys like that is is it's okay to give up home runs what's key is that those be guys that don't also give up a lot of hits and walk a lot of guys and that's one thing Verlander does not walk guys and so he gives up a decent amount of home runs even Garrett Cole gave up a decent amount of home runs last year Um, But he doesn't want guys either. Uh, You Darvish is another example of a guy who gives up, you know, a a good amount of home runs, but at least towards the end of last year, second half of last year, was not walking guys. And so, you know, a lot of times those are solo home runs and you can kind of live with those. But I think the biggest, uh, outside of that, um, and maybe prioritizing ground ball pitchers a little bit is... um, I would, uh, I think streaming is a lot harder, right? Like we've seen how volatile uh, starters can be and how utterly bad starting pitching can be. And so I think for that reason, it becomes really hard to stream guys, right? Like when you're picking up a guy off the waiver wire for those two starts, uh, there's no guarantee that that's not going to be, you know, 10 earned runs and six innings pitched obviously that's not necessarily going to be the norm you just got to hope you're lucky and you don't count uh, catch those really nasty starts Um, but like it becomes really hard to stream pitchers and so having a few really strong guys to anchor your staff is helpful and so I think that's another place where the pocket aces strategy um, is helpful because you know having those guys that can be successful with this ball um, as a foundation for your squad gives you a little bit more wiggle room for your streaming to uh, for you to get unlucky on your streaming or um, you know uh, to, to do that and so I think that's the major impact from a hitter perspective obviously uh, more guys can hit 20 home runs you know who can can hit double digit home runs and so the 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 rabbit type players the guys who uh, can't hit for power uh, even with this ball but maybe have a lot of speed Uh, become a real big drag on the rest of your team because it's hard to catch up in home runs uh, when you only have like you know two or three home runs like I'm thinking of the Malik Smiths or um, uh, you know the Billy Hamiltons Um, you know those those are uh, guys that are harder to roster now with with the landscape as it is um, with the ball and so I think that's the case and then if if there is any change to the ball I think the challenge with a lot of those hitters is going to be um, you know, we, it's hard to know who exactly benefited from the ball. We can look at guys and say, oh, you know, you're, the most home runs you'd ever hit was five, and now you hit 20, right? You know, uh, those might be guys that might jump out at you, but it's also hard to know, like, you know, does their stat cast data support the fact that they started hitting for power? Maybe did they give up a little contact and hit it. I've heard a lot of people mention that opposite field home runs were way up, and so maybe is it guys that hit a ton of offensive you know, a ton of opposite field home runs. And then if that's the case, how do we differentiate the guys who just had legit power, like a Juan Soto, 
who hits a lot of opposite field home runs versus the guys who didn't necessarily do that. Um, it's really, really hard, uh, I think, to do that. I don't think we'll have to figure that out, but I just think overall your power numbers you know, and the offensive numbers are going to be higher. I think when you look at you know, offensive numbers last year in fantasy baseball, they were up uh, a considerable amount from 2018, and I think that's kind of the landscape that we are going to that we're going to be in heading into next year. And I think that's the approach we need to have. And if it isn't, then I think um, there's just, you know, a fairly similar, like if the ball isn't deadened, you know, it may bring some of the, some of the worst pitchers, you know, they may be a little bit better, but theoretically it's going to impact a lot of those guys equally. And so it may be that the fly ball pitchers again, once again, have a little bit more, um, have a little bit more value than maybe some of the ground ball guys who are subject to higher BABIPs. Um, you know, so I, I think that's one example. And then the power, you know, is going to be down m- most of all, but I think, you know, your kind of peak power hitters are still going to hit a lot of home runs. It'll certainly be interesting, but I'm, I'm moving forward. Like the 2019 ball um, is the ball that we're going to be dealing with in, in fantasy baseball um, in 2020. And I certainly hope that it is just because I think, it's really difficult from year to year to adjust, not knowing ahead of time. Like in spring training, if they're like, hey, guess what? The balls are going to be like they were in 2018 or 2017, which I don't think they'll do because they never admit, uh, you know, that they've intentionally or whether it was intentional or not, that the balls were juiced. Um, and so, again, I expect it to stay the same. And so I think that puts maybe a little bit more uh, value in the pocket aces strategy. Um and then I think from a hitter perspective, I just think that, you know, power, you're going to need to uh, have a lot of power and it's going to be harder to roster a lot of guys who don't contribute, you know, a decent amount of um, power to your team um, in the future. And so uh, I think that uh, moving forward is going to be how you'll have to, uh, have, how you'll have to attack um, uh, the ball heading into Lastly, on the podcast, I wanted to address um, an issue that actually came up in another podcast that I just recorded, um, Common Sense uh, Fantasy Baseball with uh, Drew Morris. And we were talking about uh, NFBC uh, Draft Champions League and kind of our strategy and approach to those. And one of the things that I shared on that podcast, which I would meant to share um, as I was driving up um, for the holidays uh, the other day, was... Um, one thing that I find super helpful, not just in draft champions league, but just overall as I'm building a team is, um, as I draft, I am keeping track of what the projections are for my team. And I also establish goals that I want to get to in each one of the categories, uh, mostly for hitting. And I say that because it's nearly impossible with the way that projections are done for her, for pitchers to, um, get a reasonable pitching staff from a projections perspective. Um, the, it's just the 50th median uh, percentile outcome for pitchers is just so much higher. Like you really are needing to hit on um, hit on some of those those pitchers to be successful in the pitching category, and and, and generally you can um, at least a little bit. But I head into all of those uh, drafts with um, a spreadsheet and. Mine's in Excel, but it's essentially a spreadsheet with a VLOOKUP where I enter my, at least the starting lineup of my team, and I track how I'm doing towards different goals. And I have those goals set at uh, the 80th percentile of last year's um, finishes. So in each one of the statistical categories, so for like batting average, you know, sort the batting average from last year's, if it's a draft champions league, draft champions league. And then I look at who, who, which team finished um, in the, uh, uh, you know, was the was the 80th percentile, and then whatever that number is, I put it include as one goal. And then I also do that for the 90th percentile. So kind of like a, an upper threshold I want to aim at, and then a lower threshold that I want to aim at. And I never, generally, I can reach, I can reach the 80th percentile in some, you know, with like stolen bases or home runs, maybe the 90th percentile, maybe runs or RBI. But it's virtually impossible to reach all of those goals because it, the theory is that if you reach the 80th percentile, 
um, in, uh, in your league in every single category, you should win that category. Um, the 80th percentile of, you know, in a 15-team league uh, of 5x5 five five is 120 points. And so generally that's going to win you the league. And so that's where you want to get to. But because it's the 50th median percentile projection, you, you generally speaking cannot reach that for every single one of um, the players. But that's really the goal that you want to initially aim for. And then the idea is that by your players overperforming um, or by picking up guys on the waiver wire or taking guys from your reserves and putting them in the lineup or playing matchups you know, on a week-to-week basis, that you can increase the production of that 50th meaning medium percentile projection of your players to get better. But, you know, if you aren't using something like that and would use whatever works for you, but if you're not losing, using something like that, and I would highly recommend using projections that are vetted, that are tested, that are generally, um, you know, uh, that have generally been successful um, in leagues such as Steamer or ATC or the Bat or you know Baseball HQ, whatever it whatever it may be, um, to use those projections and set yourself some goals for your team because the the worst thing I think you can do um, to set yourself up uh, is to over project how your guys are going to do um, by using your own projections or not using at least a few different projections to kind of have a meta projection for what somebody, um, what you expect somebody to do. Because if you go in and you think every guy on your team is going to hit their, you know, is going to play really well. And the reason why you drafted them is because they're going to play really well and be better than they're supposed to be. That generally speaking is is not going to happen. You're going to have some hits, you're going to have some misses, um, but the goal is to have something. And so you never go into you know, generally when you go into any type of activity, you want to know what your goal is ahead of time and what you're aiming at. And so I think heading into those drafts or your main event drafts or your online championship drafts or your home league drafts, if you're able to, you know, access uh, a previous history of your home league, figuring out what that 80th percentile is and having that be the goal that you're striving to in each one of the categories. Um, And then when you leave a draft, even if you're not able to hit them, you can see kind of where your strengths are, maybe where your weaknesses are a little bit, but it generally can give you a sense as you go through the draft of how you're doing, you know, whether you're, te- you're building a competitive team in the draft, where those strengths and weaknesses are going to be, and that will help you moving forward in, in determining um, you know, what you need to add on the waiver wire or in your reserve rounds, whatever it may, may be. So would highly, highly recommend you know, whatever your system is to make sure that you are setting goals or keeping track of how your team looks from a projection standpoint as you build it um, any, in any one of your drafts because I think that's key uh, to you know, having a full understanding of your team and expectations and how you can, uh, moving from the draft, uh, build the best team possible. So I just wanted to include that in there because I meant to include it in the last uh, podcast and talk a little bit about that. But hopefully that is... Um, Uh, a little bit of a a helpful tool if you're not using it already or something to think about um, for your leagues this year. That is going to wrap us up for episode 108 of the podcast. Thank you uh, so much for listening. Again, I hope you had a really wonderful holiday season. I'm uh, very thankful for all of you and the fact that if you have listened to this podcast or previous podcasts that I have been uh, in a very, very small way included in your holiday celebrations or if you don't like the podcast, I guess, <laughs> uh, consternations or something, I don't know. But I'm just really appreciative of everybody. It has been a uh, just a, uh, a crazy week, to be honest with you, just with the holidays and then um, my Twitter kind of blew up. Uh, recently when uh, Vlad Sedler uh, at Roto got one of the really strong, you know, the best players out there uh, in terms of high stakes uh, fantasy baseball, uh, kind of promoted me a little bit and and said that I was a good follow under 5,000 followers. And uh, lo and behold, I now have 1,600 more followers. Uh, So it has been a crazy week, but a wonderful week. And I'm just so appreciative of the fantasy baseball community and the fact that I I get to share my ideas about fantasy baseball and some people are willing to listen and, and engage with me on those. So thank you so much for that. So best of luck with all of your fantasy baseball research. Have a happy uh, new year uh, with all the celebrations related to there. that. Take care and be kind to one another. <laughs>